Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 6.05 a.m. September the 23rd, 2020. This is episode 291 of Bitcoin and Bitfinex supports the Lightning Network's Wumbo channels. We're just going to dump right into all this stuff, man. This was written yesterday by the Bit or on the Bitfinex blog, which is blog.bitfinex.com. It says, as one of crypto's early adopters and key planners in the industry, Bitfinex is excited about innovations that will help achieve the awaited crypto mass adoption. We are one of the few crypto exchanges that has integrated the Lightning Network on its platform, providing our users with instant Bitcoin deposit and withdrawal capabilities. And we are continuously improving our Lightning Network integration to give more advanced features and capabilities to our users. At the same time, show our support toward the development of the technology. If you are not familiar with the Lightning Network, you can have a look at our Lightning series to get a better understanding of the technology. Our growing features and contributions to the Lightning Network include Bitfinex routing nodes, Lightning Wallet, one-click off and on-chain swaps, research and development. So let's talk about their Wumbo channel support here. When the Lightning Network was launched, the protocol developers put a hard cap on the max capacity of the Lightning Network payment channels. This hard hard cap is an arbitrarily low amount set at the protocol level to protect users from unforeseen bugs or errors that could occur as the network was still young and its implementations were still in massive development. This careful and considerate approach was taken by the Lightning Network developers to ensure the security of users' funds as they are continuously working on building the protocol as well as its implementations. As the Lightning Network slowly becomes more mature, the major implementations of the Lightning Network protocol have proceeded to remove the hard cap on channel capacity, paving the way for unlimited channel sizes and payment amounts. Bitfinex sees a huge potential in these larger channels. So we are bringing the Wumbo channel support to Bitfinex Lightning nodes. The Wumbo channels will give our users the ability to deposit and withdraw large amounts of Bitcoin quickly and cheaply, thus allowing them to take advantage of trading opportunities. They will also enable retailers and service providers to build new innovative applications and sell high value goods and services over the lightning network as they help to reduce the requirements to open and close multiple channels with this support the general public will have the ability to open channels up to two bitcoin in capacity with either of our nodes a number of initial retailers and wallet providers like bitrefill ln markets and lightning labs with the ability to open channels with up to five bitcoin capacity Bitfinex believes this is the big step towards the goal of scaling Bitcoin through the adoption of the Lightning Network. To celebrate this release, we have opened three, three, five Bitcoin channels, which are the biggest channels in the network so far. Five Bitcoin Wumbo channels on Lightning Network times three at Bitfinex. 
I'm not a trader, as you know, but damn. Shit, go Bitfinex. <laughs> that's, re that's really good. Now, along with the good, as you should understand, comes the, uh, comes the bad, the, the, the really, the really bad. Uh, let's, let's, first I'm going to read this juiced Jaeger post about Wumbo channels and lightning and all that kind of stuff. Cause he brings up a, a, a fairly serious issue here. Uh, he's writing this one yesterday. He says lightning is great, but can't say it is battle tested. If script kitties would be interested, they could take down those shiny new five BTC Wumbo channels with negligible cost and no effort at all. So <laughs> along with the great news out of Bitfinex comes this dude saying, well, wait, hold on. Now, who is Juiced Jaeger? Before everybody starts jeering, uh, Juiced Jaeger is actually an independent Bitcoin slash lightning engineer centered out of the Netherlands. So he's one of the guys that knows quite a bit about the lightning network. His second tweet in this thread says, the underlying issue is that a channel cannot hold more than 483 HTLCs at a time regardless of the channel capacity, sending 483 micropayments to yourself and holding on to the HTLCs is enough to incapacitate a channel for up to two weeks, TM. By utilizing the max route length to add loops, each payment can consume up to nine HTLC slots on the target channel. If the script kitty is lucky, they only need to send 54 payments to get it done. A single tiny channel takes double digit amounts of Bitcoin out of business. Here you see me locking up 500 5,800,000 sats with a refundable 18 sat payment looping five times through three main net channels owned by Bitfinex and OpenNode Co. for basically as long as I want. This happened today. Wanting to become the world's payment system sounds good, but then we can't have trivially exploited vulnerabilities like this. You gotta walk the talk, buddy. Therefore, I started a new project called Circuit Breaker, a firewall for lightning nodes. The primary goal is to encourage thinking about this problem with the potential to grow into a full-fledged lightning protection system. And then he gives a github.com link uh, to, the, to the project. So not only has he set or identified a problem, he's proposed a solution in all of six tweets. I like this guy, even though he's brought to, you know, to attention the fact that there is a major vulnerability in the Lightning Network. Now, every time that we find a vulnerability in the Lightning Network, we all get sad. And that's okay, because everybody loves it. Not everybody. I really love the Lightning Network. I don't like hearing bad news about the Lightning Network. But honestly, I mean, how mature is that attitude? It, it's not, really. It's not a mature attitude at all. You got to expect that there's problems with all this shit. And as long as there's people out there who also expect that there's problems with all this shit and have the capacity to go through and say, this is exactly the problem with all this stuff. And this is, you know, at least not exactly how we're going to fix it. But this is, here's one solution that I'm proposing and then sets up a GitHub to get that shit done. Okay, so I got nothing but applause. But let's dig a little bit deeper into that with Martin Young out of Cointelegraph. He's writing this sometime very early this morning. Developer reveals biggest unsolvable lightning attack vector. Okay, that's we've we know. 
Independent Bitcoin Lightning developer Juiced Jaeger has outlined an exploit of the micropayments network that could result in channels being compromised with very little effort and negligible cost. However, he said he's hard at work on a possible solution. Jaeger specifies that the attack could be carried out on Wumbo channels, which essentially allow larger transactions between mutually agreeing parties on the Lightning network. A Wumbo channel removes the limit to the amount of Bitcoin that can be held in a regular Lightning channel, which is around $1,700 worth at today's prices. It also removes the, the approximately $450 limit to how large an individual payment can be. Jaeger said that Wumbo channels can be exploited because the channel cannot hold more than 483 hash and time lock contracts, the aforementioned HTLCs, at any time regarding or regardless of its capacity. So a malicious actor sending 483 micropayments to themselves and holding onto the HTLCs is enough to incapacitate the channel for two weeks. The developer demonstrated that this could be achieved by using the maximum route length to add loops and more contracts to quickly reach the total for just a small initial outlay of 5.8 million Satoshis in this example. He added that if he had started a new fire or that he had started a new firewall for Lightning Nodes project called Circuit Breaker to address the problem, when asked whether this griefing attack is the biggest unsolved attack vector on LN today, he added, that depends on how you define biggest. There are other attacks that can make you lose money, which seem worse, but this is one of the biggest in terms of not knowing how to solve it. With Wumbo channels, a user can signal that they want to send more BTC than the regular limits and find a node that is willing to receive. Regular Lightning users sending micropayments will not be affected, but it is much better option for businesses and enterprise payments. Wumbo channels are growing in adoption and Bitfinex has been the latest to announce their support for them. The word Wumbo comes from a cartoon series called SpongeBob SquarePants and refers to the idea that two parties need to agree to Wumbo together for the transaction to take place. Thank God somebody finally told me where the hell Wumbo came from, man. And I, you know, I even watched this shit a lot with my kids and I'd never heard SpongeBob say anything about Wumbo. So there you go. Now let's get some rope out and stand upon a chair. Because the meme of rope and chair, so few, so few understand. What the hell am I talking about? Hell, I don't even really know what the hell's going on here. But it appears that there was several, oh God, DeFi-based meme coins that all that all seem to dump. And we know about meme, and you may have heard about the few token, I guess would be the way to put it. But there was also something called rope, and I believe there was something called chair. I'm just saying this narrative is moving so damn fast <clears throat> that it's it's impossible to keep up. But as far as few is concerned, it seemed that what happened was that a bunch of people got into a telegram group and somehow or another decided that they were going to quote unquote experiment and spin up this few F E W <clears throat> coin and Somehow or another, they've, they got a whole bunch of people involved and all of a sudden they spun up this coin and somehow or another it gained traction. And then all of the people, and it, this seems to have happened within like a day or two, they all dumped their coins and everybody's pissed. And I'm like, I don't know why you ha can be pissed at this point. It's not like you weren't warned. You were warned. If you invested anything in meme or rope 
or chair or few. I am sorry for your loss. You were warned repeatedly and with passion. You were warned. I'm sorry that you lost all your money. I really am. I, I, I don't know what to tell you. But as long as you keep pointing at us maximalists saying that we're all full of shit and then every time you do that, you lose money. How many times is that going to have to happen before you figure this shit out? Stop investing in crap. Don't do it. And here comes the next one, guys. As DeFi cools, altcoin pump addicts smell fresh blood in non-fungible tokens. This is from Shade Fadil Pasik. I'm not pronouncing that right. Out of CryptoNews.com sometime yesterday. As the correction hit the DeFi sector, market players spoiled by quick DeFi product profits are now looking for new targets to pump and are setting their eyes once again on a particular existing type of token to use as fresh blood, the non-fungible token, otherwise known as the NFTs. Ari Paul, chief investment officer of Block Tower Capital, tweeted that following a several-year-long interest in non-fungible tokens, the investment management firm expects to triple down over the next six months and allocate $10 million in USD to the theme. Jesus, Ari... As a reminder, NFTs are unique, one-of-a-kind tokens which are deployed on a blockchain network and which sometimes represent a real-world item, but not necessarily so. Actually, most represent assets that only exist in their crypto ecosystem. Paul further said that this is a very broad term encompassing numerous categories and that almost every type of NFT built to date is likely to get traction eventually. This is irresponsible, y'all. We're warning you already. And as to why it isn't, or and as to why it already isn't a billion-dollar ecosystem, Paul finds that the missing pieces are different by the NFT type. For example, there's no incentive for large game studios to decentralize. And though <clears throat> much of the recent focus was indeed placed on DeFi, NFTs have been soaring in their own right. Data from NonFungible.com shows that NFT lifetime trade volume has surpassed the hundred million dollar mark now standing at $109 million with 4.8 million sales made by the time of this writing. Also in the first half of December, or December, September, the daily average NFT trading volume was around 133,700 USD or 200% more than in the same time one year ago. The average price jumped by 358% to $110, while the average number of sales almost halved, dropping to 1,180. Uh, let go scroll through here. Meanwhile, Morgan Creek Digital found uh, Morgan Creek Digital co-founders Anthony Pompliano and Jason Williams made a big bet on digital art. Pompliano argued that the transact transition to digital art will certainly happen, and that its market cap will surpass that of the physical art. Jesus, I can't believe this. God, God, Pomp, will surpass that of physical art, which currently may sound ridiculous, he said, since the digital art market cap is less than $10 million and the traditional art market is more than $60 billion. But this is exactly what disruption looks like. Pompliano added that similar to how Bitcoin is superior to gold in almost every way, digital art is superior to traditional art in almost every way also. Sir. Physical art is hard to move around the world. It can be easily damaged and there is difficulty in proving what is authentic and what is not. Digital art is the next evolution of art. 
And a sudden shift from the DeFi to the NFT narrative once again prompted debates over what each of these is. <clears throat> NFTs are DeFi, tweeted Set Protocol product managing or market manager Anthony Sassano in response to the newly opened discussion on these tokens relation to the decentralized section of the crypto space. Um, Anthony Sassano is one of the guys that was part of the few thing, okay, that we were just talking about. So I'm, I'm taking it aside here. Uh, he was, it was a screenshot of his that lit on, or not, not a screenshot. Somebody took a screenshot of the Telegram group where Anthony Sassano was in that group and was talking about, uh, how he, I think it was how he already knew from the Uniswap guys what was going to happen, and that triggered them to basically liquidate all their few tokens, I think is, exa is, is how this is, is going on. Uh, so I, I would not stay away from anything that Anthony Sassano says. I don't know the guy. I don't interact with him, but I know he's an ETH head, and it seems that he was involved in <clears throat> the few scam, and I'm calling it a scam. Few, rope, and chair are all a meme. They're, it's all just scam coins. All right, so anything that dude says, I would take with a grain of salt. <clears throat> and in fact, he get the the rest of the article is just him talking about, or not the rest of the article, but I'm just gonna skip a little bit, okay? Because I'm not very happy with this Anthony Sassano guy and this whole few thing. So I'm gonna <laughs> come down here. Another argument soon arose, <clears throat> per which uh, while NFTs are not DeFi. They are an essential step that will allow the financial infrastructure to be built on top of real consumption assets. <clears throat> but then many wondered, what are NFTs used for, and shouldn't there be liquidity? Shouldn't there be liquidity owners could exit to when they wish to do so? Bad sentence, y'all. And when, while some claim that liquidity exists at least in certain areas, other argue, others argue that it will take a number of years for nfts to have a sustainable liquid market which is a process that requires a number of technical developments as well as going to at least somewhat mainstream teaching for example enough non-crypto art lovers what digital art is and convincing them that it's valuable to them and while moving uh, to the nft and while moving to nft debates was fast the cryptoverse never stands still uh, Priyansky Dasai has a tweet here in this article that says the narrative shift from NFT to personal social tokens will be even faster. Keep that one in mind because she's, she's actually very correct. Uh, Ceteris Paribus says another NFT tweet. I know, I know, but it's fascinating how wealth creation leads to other things. A bunch of DeFi whales who got rich over the past few months are now buying literal trash because they don't give a fuck and just feel like throwing their money around. So this is happening right before your eyes. All right. Now this, this, the, the meme on all this is everybody is getting hilariously rich except you. No, that's not true. Not everybody. Because for each one of these idiots that gets a whole boatload of cash, there are a whole lot more people that lose it. All right. There, on, on every side of a trade, there is somebody who wins and somebody who loses. Generally speaking, especially in illiquid stuff, um, things that are really cheap, things that got spun up really, really fast and dumped just as fast, that means that there are people that are on the winning side of the trade, but 10 to 100x people on the losing side of that trade. 
the chances of you being on the losing side of the trade is so freaking high. I cannot, I cannot advise you enough to stay away from any of this crap and this whole NFT bullshit. Yeah. You know what I was seeing yesterday? I was seeing people spin up copies of other people's NFT tokens within 16 minutes. I mean, just like, what was it? Crypto Finally is a, a well-known Twitter account that is so very cringeworthy, but I'm, I think she actually does that on purpose. I don't know whether to like her or hate her. I don't care. But Crypto Finally is one of these people that came up and within literally a few months, like, I don't know, 10X'd my amount of, fo- my amount of followers because, I don't know, reasons. Maybe she, because she's kind of hot. I don't know. It, it doesn't really matter. But she spun up an NFT token, and then 16 minutes later, uh, somebody took the exact it, the exact picture that she put up and made another one. And so it it here's the thing: I got two crypto finally NFTs out there. One was spun up by the creator. Another was spun up by just some average Joe. How are you gonna know? And yes, you can know by the underlying tech. Yes, I, I get that. That that one from actual crypto finally is going to be like verifiable. But the one from average Joe is also verifiable. And the only way to know the difference is to know who actually spun those things up. At what point, as a quote unquote digital art collector, do you ha- can you take a breather as to authenticity? How much do you have to know? I I don't see this as being all that easy. Like, you know, some new Picasso starts, you know, doing, you know, NFTs and all of a sudden everybody understanding that, oh, this is how you know that it's really him. I mean, honestly, think about that. Just a brand new, fresh ass noob out of the gates with a whole bunch of money coming around saying, I want to buy these NFTs. How much are they going to have to be educated to understand how to look to make damn sure? Because just because you can do a thing doesn't necessarily mean that you can instantly teach that thing to somebody who doesn't know shit about it. It's taking years to get the rest of the normie world just to think about Bitcoin, much less understand Bitcoin, much less understand all the value propositions given all the different technologies that are involved in that system. Now you got art collectors. Dude, I smell danger on the horizon. So just please understand, this is probably not a good deal. And also keep in mind, those personal tokens, those are coming. They're actually already here. But when the narrative shifts from NFTs to personal tokens, it's it's the the same thing is going to happen again. People are going to get burned just by Bitcoin. Speaking of buying Bitcoin, how about not selling it? <clears throat> There's a, uh, let's see here. Hold on for a sec. Sorry about that. So one of my stories got dumped um, off my screen, so I got had to get it back. Okay. Cointelegraph um, is clickbaiting right now with, a, well, actually it's not. Okay. It's Cointelegraph's fault too, but mostly this is Turner Wright's fault who's writing this for Cointelegraph. Uh, Cointelegraph has a couple of other articles out that are, you know, that are good. This one, however, is clickbait, terrible, bad, and filled with FUD. Okay, so what was what's what's going on? MicroStrategy CEO could liquidate two hundred million dollars in Bitcoin on a Saturday. 
that's about as clickbait as it gets. Turner, come on, man. Stop doing this shit. You know better than this. What does he know better to do? We'll get into it. Michael Saylor's it uh, has said that all four hundred million dollars of business intelligence firm MicroStrategy's Bitcoin reserve holdings could be liquidated at any time. In a September twenty second interview, Saylor told Bloomberg that although volatility isn't really a reason to sell, he would not hesitate to dump MicroStrategy's thirty eight thousand Bitcoin at a moment's notice if an alternative assets yield were to jump. That's the clickbait right there. Though MicroStrategy acquired Bitcoin in a carefully orchestrated series of 78,000 separate transactions, the CEO said offloading them would be much simpler. Quote, we can liquidate it any day of the week, any hour of the day, Saylor said. If I needed to liquidate $200 million in Bitcoin, I believe I could do it on a Saturday, end quote. Okay, so there's where the impetus to the clickbait article comes from, is that statement. This is how narratives are spun and FUD is created. There is, however, no reason to think that Saylor intends to sell the company's newly acquired Bitcoin anytime soon, particularly with the CEO estimating that so-called asset inflation will surge to more than 20% a year, eroding purchasing power. Quote, we feel pretty confident that Bitcoin is less risky than holding cash, less risky than holding gold, he said. MicroStrategy announced on August the 11th that it had purchased 21,000 BTC for $250 million dollars, Adopting the cryptocurrency as a primary reserve asset, following the initial investment, the firm came back and bought an additional 16,796 Bitcoin for $175 million. Its total holdings are now valued at roughly $401.5 million, with the crypto asset's recent 6% drop, meaning a negative 3.2% return after six weeks. Jesus, I mean, can you get to a shorter time scale here? I mean, is it possible to actually be even more impatient than this shit? See, this is, this is the stuff that bugs me about the space. However, Bitcoin in general has been on the rise in 2020, up from 7,000s in January to testing the 11,000 barrier in September. Though initially claiming Bitcoin's days are numbered in 2013, Saylor has since become a major advocate of crypto. So there you go. Okay, so what's the other side of the coin here? Um, uh, Cryptonews.com's Frederick Vold has something to say about all this stuff. The headline here is no plans to sell Bitcoin on short notice, MicroStrategy CEO confirms. Despite worries in the cryptoverse that the US-based software firm MicroStrategy might not be such a strong holder of Bitcoin as many had hoped, the company's CEO said that he had been misrepresented by the media and that he has no intention of selling Bitcoin on short notice. The confusion regarding what MicroStrategy CEO and co-founder Michael Saylor's plan with his company's BTC holdings started after an interview the software entrepreneur did with Bloomberg where he stressed how liquid Bitcoin is as an investment. Quote, we can liquidate it any day of the week, any hour of the day, Saylor was quoted as saying, while the report added that he would not hesitate to do this if better opportunities were to arise such as a jump in bond yields. Quote, if I needed to liquidate $200 million of Bitcoin, I believe I could do it on a Saturday. If I took a haircut, I believe it would be about 2%, the CEO said. Following the Bloomberg interview, Saylor was paraphrased by some crypto news outlets as saying that his firm could liquidate $200 million on a Saturday, implying that he is not a long-term holder and instead stands ready to sell at a moment's notice. However, Saylor himself later pushed back at this narrative, saying on Twitter that the headline is a, quote, misrepresentation of what he said. 
I quote, I merely indicated that Bitcoin is to be preferred as a treasury asset because it is so liquid. I never suggested an intent to trade it for other assets on short notice, the CEO explained. End quote. <clears throat> Further, in the B Bloomberg interview, however, Saylor also said that BTC is the best asset to be invested in, calling it the only thing we can find with a positive real yield. And according to the CEO, who <clears throat> co-founded MicroStrategy as a 24-year-old in 1989, most of the company's largest shareholders were very supportive and complimentary about the untraditional move to invest in the digital asset. Moreover, Saylor explained that although MicroStrategy is the first major non-crypto company to invest treasury reserves in Bitcoin, he does not believe it will be the last. Quote, it will probably be private companies first because they don't have as much inertia, Saylor said adding that the next ones will be public companies our size and then mid-size companies. Quote, we feel pretty confident that Bitcoin is less risky than holding cash, less risky than holding gold. The CEO said likening his company's earlier U.S. dollar reserves to a <clears throat> $500 million melting ice cube. Uh, okay, so two sides, of this, two sides of the coin there. We got Cointelegraph saying that, oh my God, he could sell at any time and it looks like he's going to do that. And then we've got other media outlets who are saying no. And we've got Michael Saylor himself saying, dude, that's not what I said. And take him at his word, man. I, you know, I mean, he's either going to sell or he's not. But when he makes statements like, you know, a couple of weeks ago in an interview, he said that this is a hundred year move. I mean, if somebody says that it's a hundred year move and then they sell in two weeks because of weak hands, then that's somebody who's never going to be trusted in the space again. Will it just, if he did dump, would it disrupt? Fuck yeah, it would. If he market sold, yeah, it would disrupt. We don't know what he's going to do, okay? So any of this stuff that you hear is just, is, don't worry about it. It's, there's, A, don't worry about it because there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, think about it. Can you actually call Michael Saylor on the phone and beg him not to sell? Or beg him to buy more? No, you can't. And if you are one of those people that can do that, give me a call. I'd like to, I'd like to talk. Anyway, uh, let's run the numbers. Okay, futures. Let's look at energy. Uh, it's kind of flat for oil. Uh, we're up 0.05% on uh, West Texas Intermediate and up a quarter percent on Brent North Sea. Natural gas is doing its weird fluctuations at almost one and three quarters to the upside. It looks like it's going to open in somewhere around the neighborhood of a dollar and 86 cents per thousand cubic feet. Metals, uh, we're down. Gold is down uh, three quarters of a point to 1,892. Silver's down. Damn, three and a half percent down to twenty three sixty six. Okay, let's see. Where are my indices? Okay, indices. Everything is flat. Dow futures are up like three quarters of a point. S and P is up uh got a third of a point. Nasdaq futures are basically flat. Uh, S and P mid mini is up a quarter of a point. So there's that now real money. Let's see what's going on. Cause we uh, clearly we've been fluctuating wildly. We're at 10,500. Okay. For Bitcoin price. I got a low over at hit BTC at 10,470. 
and 10,500 is actually my high price. We have 309,000 transactions performed in the last 24 hours. That's about 13,000 transactions on average per hour with 25 or 2.5 million BTC being sent in that 24 hour period. 103,000 BTC are being sent on average per hour. Eight BTC is the average transaction value. And the median transaction value is 0.056 BTC or about 50 or sorry, $585. Block times are high, 11 minutes and 20 seconds. We have 0.6 BTC being taken in fees on a per block basis and 85 BTC being taken in fees overall in the last 24 hours. We've had a 10% dump in hash rate, bringing us down to 125 exahashes per second. Ethereum is at 340, Bcash at 215, Litecoin at 45, BSV at 153, Ethereum Classic at $5, and Dogecoin at 46,000 transactions makes it walk over Ethereum Classic and Bcash, but still Litecoin has 150,000 transactions in the last 24 hours. Somebody, please, I am begging you to tell me what the hell's going on there. The price of Bitcoin, as far as Clark Moody is concerned, is 10,480. There are 18,497,000 521.08 BTC in the money supply. Uh, there are 36,900 transactions that are going to take 35 blocks to clear. Lightning Network, we have 1,103 BTC in that. That's about $11.6 million worth of capacity uh, spread across 7,493 nodes representing 37,199 channels. Percentage of Tor capacity is at 49.3%. That's 544.5 BTC. That means that there's about, well, that doesn't mean, but there are 2,421 Tor nodes on the Lightning Network. That's going to do it for your vitals. Chamath Palahapitiyas. No, I'm no, I'm not pronouncing that right. Chamath is social capital holds Bitcoin from 2013 amid talk of public listing. I did, I touched on this just a little bit, but we're going to do the whole article uh, this morning. I wasn't able to get to it yesterday. This was written on September the 21st by Ada Hui from uh, Coindesk.com. Palo Alto, California investment firm Social Capital invested in Bitcoin in 2013, CEO Chamath revealed Wednesday in an investment conference call. Bitcoin was trading between $13 and $1,200 in 2013, and today trades around $10,000, according to Coinmetrics data. Uh, Chamath made the disclosure on a September 16th call about Social Capital's plan to list open door on the New York Stock Exchange through Social Capital Hedda Sophia II, one of six special purpose acquisition companies registered with former DST global partner Ian Osborne's Hesedafia Investment Group to take companies they acquire public. Boy, that is a mouthful right there. The first social capital Hedda Sophia SPAC merged with Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic, now valued at more than $4 billion on the public market in an offering that raised $720 million. The Open Door SPAC to be conducted <clears throat> through Social Capital's Hedda Sophia 2 is raising about $1.1 billion in a deal valuing the company 
at $4.8 billion as the other four registered social capital head of Sophia's SPACs are headlining valuations between $350 and $1 billion. With potentially dozens more of these blank check companies in the work, social capital itself may go public to rival Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. Chamath mused in the June Fortune <laughs> interview, if that happened, social capital would be the first publicly traded venture capital and private equity fund manager with a significant market value to invest in cryptocurrency. In 2018, an annual investor letter said that at the time, social capital's largest investments were Bitcoin, Amazon, and the San Francisco Golden State Warriors basketball team, in which Chamath owns a minority stake. The three investments would be consolidated with the rest of social capital's funds, the letter said. By then, Bitcoin had traded around its highest historical price, which was just under $20,000 in December of 2017. The exact amount of Bitcoin social capital has bought and sold has not been publicly disclosed. Chamath has talked about holding Bitcoin before, but has not specified whether they were angel or fund investments. He told a Bitcoin conference in 2011 that he held 100,000 Bitcoin, bought at less than 100 bucks a pop, and he told TechCrunch in 2013 that he would purchase $10 million to $15 million in Bitcoin in addition to the $5 million he already owned. A senior vice president of Facebook from 27, 2007 to 2011 when he founded Social Capital, Chamath has fawned over Bitcoin in interviews and media appearance, appearances calling it schmuck insurance to hedge against the traditional financial infrastructure Social Capital, with over $1.2 billion under management, has also invested in cryptocurrency trading platform SFOX along with Box, Slack, and Second Market, now the NASDAQ private market. So Chamath out, you know, unzipping, making sure that he unzips his fly so that everybody knows that he beat Michael Saylor to the punch. I don't know if that's why he did it. It's just fun to think about. Now, <clears throat> always remember when it comes to Thanksgiving dinner, Leftovers are not as tasty as the first time around. The Defiant is writing this for Decrypt.co that Yam finally finds fertile ground after successful rebase. That's the leftover part. Yam Finance's first successful monetary exercise yesterday marks a new start to DeFi's original food-based token. Yam is an experiment in rebasing cryptocurrencies plus token incentives, a.k.a yield farming to drive liquidity liquidity for token swaps guys that's what the liquidity is for just so you know plus full on-chain governance which completely freaking failed the first time around which was why they actually had to d destroy the entire chain and rebuild it from the ground up because their governance failed so there's that plus a dow like treasury managed by token holders which, as we all know, are fickle and will just bail on you in a second and a half. So there's that. It's also testing the power of an emoji. What? Like meme token that was just a scam? I just How much more do we have to warn you guys? It's August the 11th launch immediately attracted hundreds of millions of dollars in a fierce community rallying around the project. But a bug, which rendered governance impossible, was found in the unaudited code two days later, prompting it to raise funds for an audit and relaunched an improved version, you mean leftovers. Yesterday, it passed its first test. It targets a peg of one YUSD, Yearn Finance's stablecoin, <clears throat> which it tries to achieve by adjusting or rebasing its supply whenever the price of YAM is above one 
0.05 why usd supply expands to lower the price and when the price is below 0.95 supply contracts to raise it when supply expands yams treasury mints 10 percent of the rebase amount and sells it to the yam y usd pool in uniswap in other words it buys y usd which gets deposited in the treasury and is managed by token holders the project also directs one percent of inflows into the treasury to get coin grants funding Ethereum public goods. Monday was Yam's first successful rebase. Since the Yam price was way above the peg at almost, God, $20, supply expanded and $571,000 in YUSD was added to the treasury, while five point, or, uh, $5, or sorry, 5.71K was contributed to Gitcoin. That's, I guess, 5,000, I was, yeah, $5,700 to Gitcoin. How are they going to get back that? I don't know. You know, this whole thing is confusing. The price dropped to below $7, but Yam Holder's wallet balance increased by 2.49x. The rebase happens every 12 hours and is meant to gradually push the price back to 1YUSD. The future of Yam Finance is now in the power of Yam Holders, who can vote to change anything from protocol parameters to treasure, man- treasure management to contributors' compensation. Unless, of course, this is me talking, unless, of course, YAM protocol decides to print a whole shit ton of governance tokens and holds them in a way, like the first time around, that nobody can actually get to a quorum to actually go in and fix the damn thing, which is how YAM committed suicide the first time. If you're going to fall for this shit again, you deserve everything you get. You just do. The MicroStrategy effect, <clears throat> this firm is helping businesses save in Bitcoin. Ian Allison is writing this one for Coindesk.com. Uh, when? Oh, September the 21st. The COVID-19 pandemic and its accompanying monetary policy have caused a surge in demand for Bitcoin. And now companies are eyeing digital gold to protect their treasuries from cash depreciation. Announced Monday, Bitcoin financial services firm Unchained Capital has released an advanced business account specifically targeting firms that not only want to hold Bitcoin, but want to handle their own private keys rather than rely on some third-party crypto custodian. The impetus to launch this service is straightforward and simple. It is no longer just folks in the cryptosphere who are worried about the printing of money, negative interest rates, and the like. Just look at MicroStrategy. Michael Saylor, founder of the business intelligence company, described Bitcoin as superior to cash and announced that his publicly traded firm had purchased an additional $175 million, upping MicroStrategy's total BTC holdings to around $425 million. MicroStrategy is blazing a trail that many others are now in line to follow, explained Parker Lewis, head of business development at Unchained Capital. As well as crypto-native businesses, family offices, and investment firms, There is also an emergent crop of interested businesses that are not Bitcoin-centric, Lewis said. Quote, we have companies that you wouldn't expect, like your local bakery or your local liquor store that hold Bitcoin in treasury, Lewis told Coindesk. They are not Bitcoin-centric businesses, but they hold Bitcoin, and they hold their own keys, both large and small, like the micro-strategies of this world. As for Saylor, he told Coindesk the numbers tell the tale, quote, This year, the real yield on treasury assets dived to something like minus 20%. We can expect these assets to yield 10% or less for the years to come, he said via Twitter DMs. Corporate treasurers need to keep a reasonably liquid elastic asset on the balance sheet to ensure that the company can meet its obligations to employees, customers, vendors, creditors, etc. Bitcoin is the only asset that meets those requirements, 
that also has a positive real yield, end quote. In times past, it would have been hard to imagine the CEO or chief financial officer of a company wanting to mess around with private keys. Quote, we make it really simple, said Phil Geiger, Unchained's head of marketing. We hold one key, our clients hold two keys, which means that our clients are really in full control over their Bitcoin. With these new business accounts, we have built out a combination of enterprise level controls for different user types, accounting, and so on. But at the base of everything, it's the Bitcoin protocol, end quote. This is all fine and dandy, but regulated financial firms see a gray area at best when it comes to crypto custody and are likely to lean towards the closest thing to the traditional world, a regulated custodian such as BitGo Trust. At first blush, that's entirely logical, but I think there will be a push and pull in terms of the way things were and how they are shifting over to the way things will be. We have this new form of money. Do we need to forfeit it to legacy regulation that has existed for 30 or 40 years? Maybe the reality is that the regulations need to change to deliver the best security, end quote. Well, don't hold your breath. So if a CFO needs to quickly get their hands on fiat, how does that typically work? Quote, I think this can be tailored to the size of the organization. We have relationships with five or six OTC desks, as well as being able to trade on exchange, said Lewis. Alexander Svetsky, co-founder of Bitcoin Saving at Amber has held 50% of the firm's treasury in Bitcoin for the past year. He pointed to abject conditions around cash and interest rates as a compelling incentive. Quote, look at things like <clears throat> negative interest rates. What the F kind of twilight zone <laughs> world do we live in where you now have to pay a bank to hold your money? Of course, people are looking for a non-cash alternative. Anyone who isn't thinking about holding Bitcoin now is crazy. I have to agree. I mean, I'm not going to pay a bank to hold my money. I, I, that's just stupid. All right, let's switch gears here. Talk a little bit about mining. The sun never sets on Bitcoin mining. Decentralization continues as China flounders. China with a Y. This is Jesse Willems writing for Bitcoin Magazine sometime yesterday. Bitcoin miners have successfully survived the 2020 halving and COVID-19, and the network is now seeing some of its highest hash rates ever as these operations power up new equipment and reach new levels of decentralization going into the second decade of Bitcoin mining. China still dominates the Bitcoin mining space, although the percentage of the hash rate coming from the country has dropped recently from around 65% in early 2020 to about 50%. More recently, as Chinese mining farms are weathering a particularly difficult monsoon season and the government is sending mixed signals that Bitcoin may be under attack as part of a campaign to promote their new digital yuan, shitcoin. Meanwhile, the United States, Russia, Iceland, Central Asia, and South America, among other regions, are all seeing continued growth in mining as miners benefit from plentiful, cheap, stranded energy in these regions principally hydroelectric power, wind power, or oil and gas, depending on the location. In addition, Kazakhstan has been in the news lately as its government partnered with miners through a $715 million investment fund. The following graph from a report prepared by BitOda for Fidelity Digital shows an estimated breakdown of hash power around the world, indicating that China contributes 50% of the world's hash power, while the U.S. is in second place with 14%. And if we had any balls about us and, you know, looking into the future, we'd increase that as fast as humanly possible. It should be noted 
though, that other analyses have placed China's share as high as 65% of the total hash rate, with the U.S. at 7.2% and Russia at 6.9%. The U.S. and Canada make up 21% of the global hash rate, at least in BitOda's analysis, second only to China, and that share is expected to go up by many in the industry. In a recent live stream hosted by Bitcoin Magazine, Elsa Zhao, the marketing manager for Chinese mining giant What's Miner, confirmed that her company is focusing its expansion plans outside of China. In an announcement officially coming soon, TM, the company, second only to Bitmain in its singular ability to influence Bitcoin mining, will offer deals about its new mining equipment manufacturing plant planned for the United States. Bitmain, a Chinese operation that is still the largest mining equipment manufacturer in the world, is weathering its own storm, a company feud between co-founders McCree Zahn and Jihan Wu that may split the company in half. Bitmain has two manufacturing locations, one in China for the Chinese market and one in Malaysia for international sales. As far as its mining operations, Bitmain seems poised to continue its expansion into the United States. In a recent interview with Bitcoin Magazine's John Riggins, Bitmain's head of operations for North America, Raymond Wallentukan, said that he sees more decentralization out of China in Bitmain's future with the company building on its current operations in North America. So shit, apparently back home. Walan Tukan works for, from a mining farm in interior Washington state where stranded hydroelectric power is plentiful and cheap. Bitmain also has mining farms in Texas and Tennessee. He stressed that Bitmain is now an international company as much as it is a Chinese company. <coughs> Ryan Porter, head of business development for mining consultants BitOda, told Bitcoin Magazine in an interview that more investors, including some from China, are inquiring about new mining opportunities in North America. Quote, we certainly see a reason to believe that a significant portion of hash power will migrate to North America, said Porter. The existing infrastructure, cost of power, and regulatory stability here is competitive globally, and the decentralization of hardware manufacturing could become a major factor for continued migration in the near future. So there you go. There's a bit more to this particular article, but I mean, what we're looking at here is that even Chinese companies are getting tired of China's bullshit, right? So when, when, when a country's own people that own companies that are Chinese companies or, or that country's companies get their fill and start moving away, that's the sign that regulatory arbitrage has come into play. I mean, that's just the way that this shit works. So here's the fun thing, though, <clears throat> of thinking about with the rise of world dominance, or I mean, not that they're dominating right now, but they could. China, uh, the way their manufacturing is run, the way that they're just walking all over like Hong Kong and next in line is going to be Taiwan. Um, they're, you know, it's a dangerous situation with China. I am not a fan of, of the Chinese government. Chinese people are completely different. American people are, are Americans and has nothing to do with the federal government. Our federal government sucks ass. The Chinese government sucks ass. The Russian government sucks ass. It's the people that make these countries, not their governments. Please stop saying like, like if people, if I say something like, I don't like the United States government, well then move. Why? I'm an American. I can hate my government. Guess what the founding fathers did? They hated their government and they created a brand new, new country. So that whole thing, that whole argument does not hold any water. Don't try to make it hold water. 
But at the end of the day, we see China, China even Chinese companies basically wanting to bail. We see uh, uh, countries around the world figuring out that they can do this and that they're doing it more and more. And if you really want to, to wrangle in China and Russia at the same time, you better start adopting Bitcoin-friendly regulations as a government. Because this, I, it, honestly, if you don't, <clears throat> then China's going to walk all over everything. Honestly, I, I really, I, I believe that. I don't think that they, I don't think they have a, like the government has a moral bone in their body as to personal freedoms, taking care of their people. Shit, I just saw a report that 500,000 Tibetans have been enslaved in labor camps, as far as a couple of reports uh, have done. I saw that they were forced to sell all their shit, all their livestock. You're talking about like, you know, you're talking about farmers here because this is all in the rural lands of Tibet. They just went in there and basically said, you're going to now work for us and you're going to get rid of all your shit. And I don't know if that means that they sold it to the United States government or to the Chinese government or what. But from what I'm seeing, you know, uh, 500,000 Tibetans have been, you know, enslaved. That's Jesus. I just hope it doesn't happen. This shit doesn't start happening in Africa. Why? Because booming African crypto adoption drives concerns over regulation. This is out of Samuel Haig's writing for Coin Telegraph. <clears throat> this is sometime early this morning. 2020 has seen an acceleration of African crypto adoption, with the continent emerging as the second largest region for peer-to-peer -peer trading. However, the booming growth has caught the attention of Africa's financial regulators, sparking concerns that a rush to introduce heavy-handed oversight could quell innovation in the local crypto industry. Nigeria has led the continent's growth in 2020, posting weekly P2P volumes of between $5 and $10 million, followed by Kenya and South Africa with between $1 and $2 million a week each. Speaking to Cointelegraph, a representative of top P2P exchange Paxful stated that Africa has been its strongest growing region in 2020, noting that there was also dramatic growth in smaller economies like Ghana and Cameroon. Centralized exchanges have also reported a spike in trade activity with Luno reporting $549 million worth of combined volume from Nigerian and South African customers last month, which is a 50% increase compared to the start of 2020. The exchange also notes that new customer signups have increased by 122% from the fourth quarter of 2019 until Q2 of 2020. Uh, Marius Reitz, <clears throat> Luno's general manager for Africa, told business publication Quartz that the increasing demand for crypto is being driven by the benefits that virtual currency offers over the notoriously exclusive local banking uh, sector. Reitz notes that crypto assets are seeing increasing popularity among Africa's large community of workers who live away from their home countries and with the steep fees on foreign exchange across the continent driving these migrants to explore crypto assets. Lagos-based Bycoins Exchange has also noticed growth in people trying to move money out of the country with the exchange hosting $110 million in crypto volume this year, up from $28 million during the entirety of 2019. However, the increasing popularity of crypto also has brought greater regulatory scrutiny with African lawmakers, analysts appearing divided on how to best respond to the crypto phenomenon. In April, South African regulators proposed regulations that would impose strict licensing and monitoring requirements, but do not recognize 
Crypto assets is legal tender. Last week, Nigeria's Securities and Exchange Commission proposed guidelines that would treat all crypto assets like securities by default. Stephanie Zhu of the Kenya-based exchange BitPesa welcomed the consumer protections that will come from increased regulation. Quote, it is important that the space is regulated and properly guided by the financial authorities, oh God, to ensure confidence and protection of the consumer, he said. But rights warned that hasty, heavy-handed regulation could crush innovation within the sector. Quote, what we'd like to see is a phased approach. It can be very easy for regulators to want to regulate the entire industry from the onset, but it could stifle innovation. Once governments regulate better, there's more chance of opening up integration with traditional financial infrastructure. And there would be more mass adoption as well, end quote. So there there you go, man. And that's going to do it for the morning roundup. Daily Train Wrecked brought to you by CoinGeek. That's at RealCoinGeek. And if you don't know who CoinGeek is, then you're probably not going to get this one. But after further consideration, Gary <laughs> Gary has decided that given all the intricacies of Bitcoin, he is unable to speak on a panel about social content creators moving on-chain to make money without a further understanding of the topic. We fully respect and support Gary V's decision. They're talking, of course, about Gary Vaynerchuk, and CoinGeek is the mouthpiece of Calvin Ayer's outfit, uh, BSV, and that also includes the uh, this Bitcoin Satoshi Vision forked off from uh, Bitcoin Cash, which forked off from Bitcoin for you know just is that whole it's that whole thing. Okay, just in case you don't know. Anyway, they had Gary V or Gary Vaynerchuk. Uh, he's quite famous. He's what, 2.2 million followers. They had him scheduled to speak at a CoinGeek conference and Gary had tweeted it out that he was going to be, he was proud to to represent himself at the CoinGeek conference and everybody that knew anything about this space were going, Gary, dude, you really need to look at this, 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 and this. It appears Gary has decided to pull out after further review of scammers. So just, just saying, now, dad says jokes. Two drunk guys were about to get into a brawl. One of the guys grabs a stick and draws a line in the dirt and says, if you cross this line, I'll hit you in the face. That was the punchline. Awesome. There's nothing left to say. Okay, so I'm coming in like right, like almost right at under an hour. Let's see if I can do it. Can I do it? I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.